Addicts are not different from the rest of humanity. Our understanding of addiction is too narrow because we tend to think of addiction as something inherent in certain people, those we label as addicts. The label implies that they're different from the rest of humanity. They may rise above their addictions one day, but for now, they belong to this category. In truth, addiction is produced largely by the environment and circumstances. There isn't a bright line between addicts and the rest of us. We're all one product or experience away from developing our addictions. Addictive behaviors have existed for a long time, but in recent decades they've become more common, harder to resist, and more mainstream. These new addictions don't involve direct introduction of chemicals into your system, but they produce the same effects because they're compelling and well-designed. Some, like gambling and exercise, are old, others, like binge viewing and smartphone use, are relatively new. But they've all become progressively more difficult to resist. There isn't a bright line between addicts and the rest of us. We're all one product or experience away from developing our own addictions. In many respects, substance addictions and behavioral addictions are very similar. They activate the same brain regions, and they're fueled by some of the same basic human needs, social engagement and social support, mental stimulation, and a sense of effectiveness. Strip people of these needs and they're more likely to develop addictions to both substances and behaviors. Behavioral addiction consists of six ingredients, compelling goals that are just beyond reach, irresistible and unpredictable positive feedback, a sense of incremental progress and improvement, tasks that become slowly more difficult over time, unresolved tensions that demand resolution, and strong social connections. How do we coexist with addictive experiences that play such a central role in our lives? Millions of recovering alcoholics manage to avoid bars altogether, but recovering internet addicts are forced to use email. You can't apply for a travel visa or a job or begin working, without an email address. Fewer and fewer modern jobs allow you to avoid using computers and smartphones. Addictive tech is part of the mainstream in a way that addictive substances never will be. Abstinence isn't an option, but there are other alternatives. You can confine addictive experiences to one corner of your life while courting good habits that promote healthy behaviors. Meanwhile, once you understand how behavioral addictions work, you can mitigate their harm, or even harness them for good. The same principles that drive children to play games might drive them to learn at school, and the goals that drive people to exercise addictively might also drive them to save money for retirement. Addictions are damaging because they crowd out other essential pursuits, from work and play to basic hygiene and social interaction. The good news is that our relationships with behavioral addiction aren't fixed. There's much we can do to restore the balance that existed before the age of smartphones, emails, wearable tech, social networking, and on-demand viewing. The key is to understand why behavioral addictions are so rampant, how they capitalize on human psychology, and how to defeat the addictions that hurt us and harness the ones that help us. The rise of behavioral addiction. Modern definitions recognize that addiction is ultimately a bad thing. A behavior is addictive only if the rewards it brings now are eventually outweighed by damaging consequences. Breathing isn't addictive because, even if it is very hard to resist, it isn't harmful. Addiction is a deep attachment to an experience that is harmful and difficult to do without. Behavioral addictions don't involve eating, drinking, injecting, or smoking substances. They arise when a person can't resist a behavior, which, despite addressing a deep psychological need in the short term, produces significant harm in the long term. 
It isn't the body falling in unrequited love with a dangerous drug, but rather the mind learning to associate any substance or behavior with relief from psychological pain. There's a key difference between addictions, and obsessions and compulsions. Addictions bring the promise of immediate reward or positive reinforcement. In contrast, obsessions and compulsions are intensely unpleasant to not pursue. They promise relief, also known as negative reinforcement, but not the appealing rewards of a consummated addiction. In 2003, seven Canadian psychologists, led by the researcher Robert Valorand, wrote a paper splitting the concept of passion in two. Passion, they said, is defined as a strong inclination toward an activity that people like, that they find important, and in which they invest time and energy. Harmonious passions are very healthy activities that people choose to do without strings attached. Individuals are not compelled to do the activity, the researchers said, but rather they freely choose to do so. With this type of passion, the activity occupies a significant but not overwhelming space in the person's identity and is in harmony with other aspects of the person's life. Obsessive passions, however, are unhealthy and sometimes dangerous. Driven by a need that goes beyond simple enjoyment, they're likely to produce behavioral addictions. As the researchers defined it, the individual cannot help but engage in the passionate activity. Because activity engagement is out of the person's control, it eventually takes disproportionate space in the person's identity and causes conflict with other activities in a person's life. Today, addiction is better understood than in the 19th century, but it has also morphed and changed over time. Chemists have concocted dangerously addictive substances, and the entrepreneurs who design experiences have concocted similarly addictive behaviors. This evolution has only accelerated over the past two or three decades and shows no signs of slowing. Just recently a doctor identified the first Google Glass addict, an enlisted naval officer who developed withdrawal symptoms when he tried to wean himself off the gadget. He'd been using it for 18 hours a day, and he began to experience his dreams as though he were looking through the device. At night, when he relaxed, his right index finger would repeatedly float up to the side of his face. It was searching for the glass power button, which was no longer there. The biology of behavioral addiction. There's a modern-day malady that affects two-thirds of all adults. Its symptoms include, heart disease, lung disease, kidney disease, appetite suppression, poor weight control, weakened immune functioning, lowered resistance to disease, higher pain sensitivity, slowed reaction times, mood fluctuations, depressed brain functioning, depression, obesity, diabetes, and certain forms of cancer. That malady is chronic sleep deprivation, which is rising in the wake of smartphones, e-readers, and other light-emitting devices. Sleep deprivation is a behavioral addiction's partner, the consequence of persistent over-engagement. It's a global problem that has recently attracted plenty of attention. 60% of adults aged between 18 and 64 keep their phones next to them when they sleep, which might explain why 50% of adults claim they don't sleep well because they're always connected to technology. Sleep quality has declined dramatically in the past half-century, particularly over the past two decades, and one of the major culprits is the bluish light that emanates from many of these electronic devices. For millennia, blue light existed only during the daytime. Candles and wood fires produced reddish-yellow light, and there was no artificial lighting at night. Firelight isn't a problem, because the brain interprets red light as a signal for bedtime. Blue light is a different story because it signals the morning. So 95% of us are inducing jet lag at night by telling our bodies that the day is beginning just before we go to bed. 
Normally, the pineal gland buried deep in your brain produces a hormone called melatonin at night. Melatonin makes you sleepy, which is why people who suffer from jet lag take melatonin supplements before bed. When blue light hits the back of your eyes, the pineal gland stops producing melatonin, and your body prepares for the day. Research has shown that addictive behaviors produce the same brain responses that follow drug abuse. In both cases, several regions deep inside the brain release a chemical called dopamine, which attaches itself to receptors throughout the brain that in turn produce an intense flush of pleasure. Most of the time the brain releases only a small dose of dopamine, but certain substances and addictive experiences send dopamine production into overdrive. At first, the upsides dramatically outweigh the downsides as the brain translates the rush of dopamine into pleasure. But soon the brain interprets this flooding as an error, producing less and less dopamine. The only way to match the original high is to up the dosage of the drug or the experience, to gamble with more money or snort more cocaine or spend more time playing a more involving video game. As the brain develops a tolerance, its dopamine-producing regions go into retreat, and the lows between each high dip lower. Instead of producing the healthy measure of dopamine that once inspired optimism and contentment in response to small pleasures, these regions lie dormant until they're overstimulated again. The ingredients of behavioral addiction. Beyond the world of books, goals have become harder to escape. The internet has exposed people to goals they barely knew existed, and wearable tech devices have made goal tracking effortless and automatic. When you are trying to seek out new goals, today they land, often uninvited, in your inbox and on your screen. We might get by if we were able to leave those emails unread for hours or even days at a time, but to the detriment of productivity and well-being, we can't help responding to new emails almost as soon as they arrive. Wearable tech is a catch-all term that describes clothing and accessories with electronic computer-based functions. Many of these devices either give you goals or ask you to nominate your own. The gold standard steps milestones are the number of steps the wearer walks each day. Reach the goal, 10,000 steps, for example, and the device emits a reinforcing beep. In moderation, personal goal setting makes intuitive sense, because it tells you how to spend your limited time and energy. But today, goals visit themselves upon us, uninvited. Sign up for a social media account, and soon you'll seek followers and likes. Create an email account, and you'll forever chase an empty inbox. Wear a fitness watch, and you'll need to walk a certain number of steps each day. Play Candy Crush and you'll need to break your existing high score. Social confirmation, or seeing the world as others see it, is a marker that you belong to a group of like-minded people. In evolutionary terms, group members tended to survive while loners were picked off, one by one, so discovering that you're a lot like other people is deeply reassuring. When people are deprived of these bonds, they experience a form of pain so severe that it's sometimes called the social death penalty. It's also very long-lasting. Just remembering a time when someone excluded you is enough to rekindle the same agony, and people often list cases of social exclusion among their darkest memories. There's nothing wrong with making friends online, as long as you also make friends in the real world. If we're good friends, and we're sitting together, that interaction, that energetic exchange, releases a whole bouquet of neurochemicals that keeps us each regulated emotionally and physiologically. And it's our birthright as social animals to have lots of this sort of safe and caring interaction that keeps us regulated. We're not meant to be isolated islands.
The addictive online friendships that attract young gamers are dangerous, not for what they provide, but for what they can't provide, a chance to learn what it means to sit, face to face, as you maintain a conversation with another person. Nipping addictions at birth. Today, the average school-aged child between 8 and 18 years spends a third of her life sleeping, a third at school, and a third engrossed in new media, from smartphones and tablets to TVs and laptops. They spend more time communicating through screens than with other people directly, face-to-face. -face. Since the turn of the new millennium, the rate of non-screen playtime fell 20%, while the rate of screen playtime increased by a similar amount. Children are especially vulnerable to addiction because they lack the self-control that prevents many adults from developing addictive habits. Regulated societies respond by refusing to sell alcohol and cigarettes to children, but very few societies regulate behavioral addictions. Kids can still play with interactive tech for hours at a time, and they can still play video games as long as their parents will allow. The author became interested in what he called hardship inoculation. This is the idea that struggling with a mental puzzle, trying to remember a phone number or deciding what to do on a long Sunday afternoon, inoculates you against future mental hardships just as vaccinations inoculate you against illness. Reading a book, for example, is harder than watching TV. There is good early evidence to support the idea that small doses of mental hardship are good for us. Young adults do much better on tricky mental puzzles when they've solved difficult rather than easy ones earlier. Adolescent athletes also thrive on challenges. We've found, for example, that college basketball teams do better when their preseason schedules are more demanding. These mild initial struggles are critical. Depriving our kids of them by handing them a device that makes everything easier is dangerous. We just don't know how dangerous. Hillary Cash opined that kids shouldn't be exposed to screens before the age of two, she says. Their interactions, Cash argues, should be direct, social, firsthand, and concrete. Those first two years set the standard for how those kids will interact with the world when they're 3 and 4 and 7 and 12 years old, and so on. They should be allowed to watch passive TV until they reach elementary school, around age 7, when they should be introduced to interactive media, like iPads and smartphones. Cash also suggests limiting screen time to 2 hours per day, even for teenagers. It's not easy, she admits. But it's critical. Kids need sleep and physical activity, and family time, and time to use their imaginations, those things can't happen when they're lost in screen worlds. The American Academy of Pediatrics AAP, agrees, its statement on infant media consumption ends with the words, young children learn best by interacting with people, not screens, instead of banning screens, it lists three major qualities of healthy screen time. First, parents should encourage their children to connect what they see in the screen world to their experience of the real world. This screen-to-reality bridging is known as the transfer of learning, and it improves learning for two reasons. It requires children to repeat what they've learned, and it encourages them to generalize what they've learned beyond a single situation. If a dog on the screen is the same as a dog on the street, the child learns that dogs can exist in many contexts. Second, active engagement is better than passive viewing. An app that requires children to act, remember, decide, and communicate with their parents is better than a TV show that allows them to absorb content passively. Third, screen time should always focus on the content of the app rather than the technology itself. Habits and architecture. The gap between public and private behavior contradicts the myth that we fail to break addictive habits because we lack willpower. In truth, it's the people who are forced to exercise willpower who fall first. 
Those who avoid temptation in the first place tend to do much better. According to Wendy Wood, a psychologist at the University of Southern California who studies habits reported that willpower is about looking at those yummy chocolate chip cookies and refusing them. A good habit ensures you're rarely around those chocolate chip cookies in the first place. The problem isn't that people lack willpower, it's that there are a thousand people on the other side of the screen whose job it is to break down the self-regulation you have. Distraction works just as well if you're trying to overcome a behavioral addiction, if not more so because you aren't also grappling with substance withdrawal. Some people keep a stress ball or a key chain or a small puzzle nearby, so their hands are redirected elsewhere whenever they have the urge to bite. The best way to overcome a bad habit or an addiction is to keep the cue and the reward consistent while changing the routine, by replacing the original behavior with a distraction. For nail biters, the cue might be the fidgeting that goes on just before they begin chewing, a subtle search for rough nail ends that can be smoothed by chewing. Instead of chewing at that point, they might adopt the new routine of playing with a stress ball. And finally, since the reward might be the sense of completeness that comes from chewing the rough nail ends, the nail biter might complete 10 squeezes of the stress ball. So the cue and the reward stay the same, but the routine changes from nail biting to squeezing the stress ball 10 times. Though the golden rule is a useful guide, different addictions demand different routine overrides. What works for people who can't stop checking their emails over lunch may not work for WoW addicts. The key is to work out what made the original addiction rewarding. Sometimes the same addictive behavior can be driven by very different needs. There is one subtle psychological lever that seems to hasten habit formation, the language you use to describe your behavior. Suppose you were trying to avoid using Facebook. Each time you're tempted, you can either tell yourself, I can't use Facebook, or you can tell yourself, I don't use Facebook. Behavioral architecture acknowledges that you can't escape temptation completely. You can't stop using your phone altogether, but you can aim to use it less often. You can't avoid checking email, but life should be compartmentalized so refreshing your email account isn't always an option. There's a time for work and tech, and another for unencumbered vacations and social interactions. Many of the tools that drive our addictions are deeply invasive, so we're forced to be vigilant. Smartphones are ubiquitous, if you own wearable tech, it doesn't leave your body while you're awake. Conclusion Half of the developed world is addicted to something, and for most people that something is a behavior. It might be phones, email, video games, TV, work, shopping, exercise and a long list of other experiences that exist on the back of rapid technological growth and sophisticated product design. We need to understand how, why, and when do we first develop and then escape behavioral addictions. The goal is to communicate with one another directly, rather than through devices, and the glow of these social bonds will leave us richer and happier than the glow of screens ever could. Try this, we can't abandon technology because it fuels behavioral addiction, moreover, they are also miraculous and life-enriching. The following are the author's suggestions, our technology advances should be carefully engineered that they don't need to be addictive. It's possible to create a product or experience that is indispensable but not addictive. Workplaces, for example, can shut down at 6, and with them work email accounts can be disabled between midnight and 5 the next morning. Games, like books with chapters, can be built with natural stopping points. Social media platforms can demetricate, removing the numerical feedback that makes them vehicles for damaging social comparison and chronic goal-setting. Children can be introduced to screens slowly and with supervision, rather than all at once.